0: Dr. Kuntz, I'm a big fan of Herman Sasa for a number of reasons. You know, one of the books I spent you know, a couple of years writing was based on just one of his essays and the insight that as a Lutheran theologian of Europe during the mid-20th century, he just had tremendous insight into a couple of things, and one of them happened to be the value of the Lord's Supper in times of societal crisis. Uh, one of the other things, though, that he really stressed hard and and i guess i kind of took for granted although like most theologians he used bible verses to prove his point so you know he, he referenced scripture but you know i believe charles spurgeon references scripture too so you know we don't always come to the same conclusions um, <laughs> yeah. but he really stressed this idea that there is no new testament civil order of the church outside of the Word of God and the sacrament rightly administered, but that there is no preferred left hand administration of the church, say, hierarchical, say, congregational. Uh, That is, the church's structure is liturgical, historical, and dogmatic, uh, not so much what a business plan, pragmatic. Uh, It, In fact, maybe is pragmatic in the sense that it's adaptable and tends to take shapes that reflect its place in history. And so I'd always kind of looked at it as, you know, a lot of what we see in a body's existence as a expression of the church has to do with when it came into existence as a body, and it will reflect that age. And so, you know, the Pope in the Middle Ages, king of the world, and from there it's kind of downhill. Um, But I do think uh, Sasa's point is correct, and this is going to get into what we talked about last time with regards Mm -hmm. to how do Lutherans, how do Christians really uh, look at organizing ourselves going forward in the face of a... It's over now, Western civilization. So I'll just count that as a softball toss-up in the air, and we'll go from there.
1: Whenever you're taking an idea or a resource or something or or an insight from somebody from a different, not just a culture, that, that sounds like it's just like his food and his language, but in addition to the way that language shapes your thinking, also your historical presuppositions, what seems normal and obvious and can generally go unexplained is going to differ widely between a German educated on what was their 19th century, but sourced back into the Reformation era for both Protestants and Catholics, their educational model versus a modern American. And a modern American hears an affirmation of you know non-necessity to form has permission for anything. And that that's not quite what a German is going to mean by that, probably not even now, but certainly someone educated the way Sasa was, or his colleague at Erlangen Ehlert. And the issue there is something you can easily see with really the exact same question of how are the church and the church's ministry related to each other, is that we took what is essentially we. Lutherans in America, not even necessarily terribly Americanized Lutherans, just Lutherans located in the United States, took the affirmation from an earlier Erlangen professor named J.W. Herfling, H-O-E-F-L-I-N-G, if you're looking for him in English anywhere, about the utterly historical, non-dogmatic nature of how the church is constituted. And we took some of his practical gestures in that direction, although those did not have the same practical effect in the Bavarian State Church, which is what the Erlangen faculty was responsible for, that they did in America, and those were turned into essentially a, in, an entirely formless doctrine of the ministry in the church most influenced by him, which was the which is now called the Wisconsin Synod. So you're always dealing with something, and I I can go on about this just phenomenon all day with other topics, alert and the third use of the law, lots of things like that, is that this this is an incapacity that we have demonstrated time and again to understand our own culture sufficiently well enough to know that it's different from others, but also to take the insights from other cultures and use them fruitfully in our own. Because of course we're not dealing with a situation of being a state-sanctioned consistory governed, which is something like a something like a board of directors almost, like our synod board of directors, where we have clergy and laity governing the church together. We we don't we don't have a state sanction on that exactly, uh, not in the same way that the Bavarians did, where they're governed by a Roman Catholic monarch, but he's not that of the church, and the Lutherans can do their own thing but they have this constitutional relationship to the state. So those things are whatever they are. And and Sasa's discussion is whatever it is, and I'm happy to evaluate it on its own terms in a second. But I think for talking about the Presidio from a Spanish-speaking context or the Covenant from an English Protestant context, when we're talking about Lutherans anywhere, or even Lutherans in America specifically, we have to be a little bit better at understanding how we're alike others, certainly other Lutherans in other countries, but we're also different, and particularly in things like order, we're different, and even our presumption about the necessity of order is different. So Sasa would <laughs> the idea that 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 Sasa is saying, well, it's not a you know it's not a dogmatic necessity that it's not a New Testament necessity, and that was what his doctoral dissertation was in was in New Testament. The New Testament doesn't doesn't give a specific order. Therefore, let's call a female math teacher to our Lutheran school, right? Like that's, you know, <laughs> that's not what he's saying, but that's what we're doing with right. things like what right. he's saying. right? So we need to understand that that's, that's our tendency is to be violently pragmatic uh, well, and formless.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I, you're yeah. not going to hear any argument uh, against that here. I think to Sauce's intended point is mm-hmm. that what you talked about earlier, church in ministry, that 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 means something, right? Yeah, that it's not yeah. just uh, a code for knowing that we're the good guys right? Like, there's a reality behind this. Uh, And particularly, though, that word ministry, formless or otherwise, the word itself is pretty vanilla stretched over what, I don't know, some other more harsh flavor uh, that that isn't a flavor friend. And so what do we mean when we're even talking about the church and her ministry? And again, in Sauce's favor, I think what he is getting at is that there really is only one thing the church properly does, and and that is proclaim the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And then everything else kind of comes from there. But uh, that would be the public ministry, and then it gets into how many versions of that yada yada. But I'll let you kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, because the issue here, and where I would disagree with Sasa on his own terms, would be the idea that there is no order to the fact that there is a public ministry. Okay. So I think the the fact that there are ministers at all, whatever they're, and this is where it's very easy to agree with, particularly the Erlangen School's insight that historical forms very widely and knowing that is really important, especially to being clear about what matters and what doesn't, is that the terms for those public ministers are going to vary very widely they could be ministers they could be overseers those are equivalent terms as even saint jerome teaches in his commentary on paul's letters that the presbyter or elder that's presbyteros that's going to come into english as priest and the overseer or episkopos that's going to come into english as bishop that if you want to use these terms, bishops and priests are the same thing in the New Testament. You can make an argument that a deacon, which is just the Greek word for servant, and then the activity of deacons is a diaconia. That's the word that comes in English as ministry, that a deacon is not exactly the same thing. And that's that's fine. Figuring out what exactly a deacon is is also kind of up to you because you'll notice that in Acts, they get appointed for one purpose and then run around preaching and baptizing too. <laughs> therefore are engaged in the the ministry or the service that the lord jesus is is making or giving to the world which is the proclamation of the gospel so the relationship between those overseer slash elders or bishop slash priests and deacons that's its own question okay but the idea that there is an order and that there is oversight and that in hebrews which we tend to underutilize for a variety of reasons it's clear that there are people who give account for your souls okay or they're called by the writer who's almost unanimously throughout history attributed to be paul also in manuscripts there paul calls them those who are in authority over you so that you have a structure which you find if you're a lutheran you find this in your small catechism too that the table of duties put The relationship between the pastor and the congregation in the same way that you have relationships between a government and its citizens or a father and his family or whatever is that there's an authority structure. Now, the precise shape of that authority structure does it is to me asking the same question is like, does my dad have to live on the same property as I do? does the government have to have this particular shape or this much land that it controls that's all kind of up to you and up to local circumstance and there i completely agree with sasa but the fact that there is a public ministry means and and i'm probably saying this more to correct american listeners than i am sasa right he probably knows this too is that the fact that there is a public ministry means that there is an order to these things and therefore the liturgical history of the church reflects an underlying reality it's not arbitrary it's not an arbitrary outgrowth or as is common in a lot of people's thinking about history because they they're taught this about nature so then they tend to map it onto everything else is that the church's history is evolutionary meaning it's just changing by virtue of accidents and this is not in fact the case so I don't need to put the pastor in a certain set of vestments, a certain height via nice stone steps above the rest of the congregation in the liturgy. But the idea that he's leading the liturgy or that he's proclaiming in the liturgy or celebrating the Lord's Supper in the liturgy, those are all orders directly derived from the words of Jesus.
0: Yeah, this is where I think uh, when I was in seminary, I remember reading in some textbooks where some old guys – who wrote some stuff we were supposed to read, and I was reading very quickly. <laughs> made a big deal about the word charisma, and there yeah. was all this charisma talk, and it was so important. And I'm, you know, I'm, I gotta get the work done, and the, tomorrow's coming, homework, yada yada. Move on, charisma, good, good, proclaim. Okay, it means proclaim, good. Um, yeah, but that's what you're getting at here a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that there are appointed the the Greek word here taken from that word kerygma is keruks or heralds. There are appointed proclaimers and that therefore the ministry is not an evolutionary development or an accidental byproduct, nor, and this is more of the 19th century version, because this, this theory of of change over time was used to eventually justify looking at basically church history as if it's incomplete until you get the ecumenical patriarch at Constantinople or until you get a full-fledged, fully functioning papacy in Rome or something that you're waiting for a time when this gets figured out and fulfilled or you're you're waiting for the local congregation to be the only divine form of the church, you know, according to classic Missouri Synod stuff.
0: But that's where I took the opposite thing from Sasa was that like, you're not going to get the perfect form of the church. You're going to get a very, very dirty – convoluted up and down seasonal structure that may or may not endure until Christ returns. And that has a lot more to do with what's being kerygmed than with how you're counting yes. the money to buy the chairs.
1: Exactly. And because what what Lutherans are asserting certainly classically and at our best moments even today is that the church has what it needs to do what it needs to do from the first. It's not waiting for Peter to get to Rome and institute, you know, take take full possession of the papacy. It's not waiting for Constantinople to exist, <laughs> you know, as something other than Byzantium and as some sort of... I mean, it's not, it's not waiting for that kind of fulfillment because a lot of the errors that you're going to see made in order, and the reason that we're talking about order today is partly because I find that it's the thing most in the way of people not being despairing about the future, is that... I think they're they're like waiting for something to happen. Yes. And and what what we have classically said and what like I'm saying at our best moments we say today is that what we need when we say that for instance scripture is sufficient it doesn't mean that you you've got just enough so that you're not, you know, hungry again in 20 minutes. By sufficiency we mean entirely sufficient. So what you need both for order and anything else you might imagine for the church, but also for the rest of life is there. You don't need to wait for some American, you know, ecclesial Caesar or Caesar per se to be revealed, right? You have what you need and what you need is the proclamation of the gospel. You don't need necessarily for someone, because (laughs) this is the, this is the insight about the nature of the, of the papacy specifically, but you can use this with all sorts of orders and groups, especially those that have been impressed with themselves historically. And we can bring this home if you want to, is that what happens is a, a, a real gift from God gets, surprise if you've ever read the Bible, misused by men. So for instance, the institutional capacities of the various bishops of Rome as the Western empire is crumbling for various reasons, economic, military, religious, and so on. Their capacities are now going to be used to create an institution that will claim, that will claim divine prerogatives. It does not and cannot be proven from scripture to have. So, I mean, where where is it functioning and authorizing anything that's going on in the book of Acts, for example? What's... So what's the point of that? And this would be to rehash debates that were had exhaustively in the 16th century. We don't need to do that today. The point is, at any given time, men are perfectly capable of misusing what God has given them to aggrandize themselves. And that that is just as much of a possibility in a time of great chaos and change as it is that everything falls apart. Okay, so things could easily fall apart, and we've been mainly concerned on the show about helping you not to have them fall apart in your own family, in your own church, and so forth. But the other thing that can that can also easily happen, and as we bring it home, as I indicated in the show notes, this is actually the case, is that you get both a degradation or a collapse, but in a situation of collapse, you also get, newly brutal or newly comprehensive authority that is making claims that are easily refuted from the New Testament. But when you have a time of chaos, the last thing that happens, generally speaking, is that people find a renewed appreciation of the sufficiency of scripture. The fact that that ever happens anywhere at all, at any point in the history of the church is amazing. (laughs) Because usually it doesn't. Because usually you get a combination of collapse and brutal authority, authority seems to be like the wrong word almost, maybe we could just say power, asserting itself, right? It's sort of the the collective or the organizational expression of, we would say, when you are not resting on Christ in the gospel, you are prone either to despair or to pride. So when you are not resting on Christ in the life of the church, you are prone either to collapse or to brutal power
0: so the the remnant then is you just said a moment ago the surprising thing right is that the remnant is not something that happens once in a while or sometimes the remnant is the proper form of the christian congregation you know (laughs) it's it's actually what what the church is right in almost every time Except for some very rare moments, in which case there's a very visible big church, but I, I guarantee it, remnants still at work at that in that place too. Uh, there's a battle for the soul of that organization and uh, and the charisma. What what mouth, what voice is filling that house every week? Uh, so, um, yeah. From there, then shifting a little more toward review from last week, so that we yeah. can kind of yeah. build on that then.
1: What we covered last week is the idea, and this is especially aimed at the at at what I think are two very prevalent, salient errors. So these are not just faults in logic. They're they're faults in life that I see in people, both that I talk to and and where I go. And they are respectively despair and impatience and the the despair and the impatience are related to each other i mean both can be found or either can be found in a person or a group despair is probably most common because i i don't find that you know a a, a person a, a thinking person of goodwill a, a congregation that's trying to survive whatever it is they're they're often not cynical they're just beaten down so despair comes easily to them. Impatience, I find more often in the young. So not necessarily those who have been at it for a long time or hold positions of much actual authority. So this, this involves, right, particularly as we talked about last week, if you're involved in having or possessing or spreading information, but you don't necessarily have responsibility consonant with what you know. So there's an impatience to get into positions of authority and to do something, to change something that's natural and understandable, but also an impatience with each other, with older generations, with the world that's natural, understandable, but also can be destructive. But that impatience is not found only in the young. It's also found in those who simply aren't even... I mean, they're so impatient, they're not even trying to get along with each other. And I think that a couple of weeks ago... Listeners were confused by that, or, or any call to unity, because I find, particularly in Lutherans, that they don't assume that unity exists, which is which is the opposite of what happens in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you've got unities until you've got a fissure over who's getting what food distribution, or are Gentiles legitimate? And then instead of working to settle it, but acting like it's abnormal, we presume that breaks and disunity are normal. And then unity would be some kind of enormous dialogical achievement that we'd have to work at for years and years and years and probably would never get to. So here's another council of despair on an organizational level. For all practical intents and purposes, a pious Wisconsin Senate Lutheran is the same as a pious Missouri Center Lutheran. Now, I know a lot of the differences, and I even know some of the differences, both historically and presently, that a lot of people don't know, like how the call processes work in each con- in each body today because they're different. They're, They're quite different. Okay. But I'm saying like what you believe, what you hope for, what you're trying to teach your children probably doesn't have a lot to do with the legitimacy of a divine call to a female math teacher. Okay. That probably has very little to do with anything. We presume, most of us presume, we will never be back together in our lifetimes. Now, we would love to, we want to, we say we do, but we presume it's never going to happen. And that is because, not just because maybe we're not interested really if God desires those things, but also because we assume that breaks and fissures are normal. And that is, of course, obvious in the same way that it's obvious to a child of divorce that he himself would get divorced one day, even if he gets married first. And that unity is actually normal, and then a break in unity is abnormal. So once you figure that unity is normal, now you understand how or why unity is something that they're trying to repair or maintain whenever disunity occurs, for instance, in the book of Acts. When we talk about the future, despair is probably the most common thing, but impatience is there too because we're dealing with a situation where it seems like everything needs to change immediately and the flow of information, not necessarily of responsibility, not necessarily of actual achievement, but of information is incredibly fast. And because of its incredible speed, it comes to dominate All other facets of human life, such as work, responsibility, achievement, none of those seem to matter since the information is flowing much faster. And that affects all of our thinking. That affects everybody's life today. It's why I think people are just vastly impatient everywhere they go. But because of that, if we're saying that we're involved in a project of reconquest, we're also saying that impatience needs to become unthinkable for us because we could have hundreds of years to take back our own civilization, but also that unity is necessary in doing so, okay? So if you want to resort to despair or impatience, you certainly will have space and time to be allowed to be alone and in your own mind utterly correct. The issue is that is Precisely the absolute most useful thing your enemies could ever see for you is for you to be utterly alone and in your own mind, utterly correct. So if that is a native you know, problem that particularly people who have been trained technologically to be impatient have, then you know they've got you right where they want you
0: it sounds it sounds diabolical like on, on every level it's like what, right. what the devil is uh so now let's bring all of that into or back together with that remnant thought from before yeah. right so the yeah. the power of remnant thinking as i've experienced it so far is precisely the power of patience in the face of what would be despairing but cannot be despairing because of the elective destiny of the Church of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And then, therefore, must be what he's given me to right. be the thing that is what I'm supposed to deal with today, right? I, I thought I was going to build this really big, cool church with all these people, but he wanted me to get crucified, right? So, like, that's what happened to, to some of these yeah. apostles, right? So, yeah. um, he, he has a plan in all of this, and so for us to then now, wh- where are you? I mean, we're doing a little insider talk today. LCMS, well, yeah. Lutherans That's in fine. America, right? As right. a treat, you know. It's but, fine. Yeah, right, you know. And if yeah. but maybe you're in a Roman Catholic church. If you are, I know you're not all in agreement with everybody, and there's all sorts of politics going on, right? So, so. Uh, h- how do you, where you are, Christian, work for unity to be the normal thing that you experience with? Name it: your congregation, your family, um, your church body, uh, the other Christians down the street. Right? Granted, there's going to be distinctions in every single one of these places. There's going to be people you disagree with about stuff. But how do you work at a spirit of unity? And dare I bring up the specter? But it was another Sassaism. I mean, he, the man loved ecumenism, and he worked very hard for it. Maybe to the um, I don't know how Australian Lutheranism's really doing as a result. Of his work uh, these days, but um, that is something though that uh, Adam, frankly, has been on my mind just the last week. uh, That there, the need to build unity amongst Christianity is something that lutherans are particularly postured to do because we're the inheritors of this augsburg confession thing which is before anything an ecumenical document it's what it's meant to be that's what it was delivered as That's what it's rejected as by rome and if they'd accept it we could have some conversations i think right so yeah. like um ecumenism is where we're going to go i'll let you take it from here but just to okay. really put an emphasize on uh anyone out there if you if you do anything from today's show if you haven't read the oxford confession and you want to think about unifying the church particularly the men of your congregation who vote in a constitution that probably subscribe to the oxford confession you know figure out what that thing is you know biblical literacy is the war uh, but the oxford confession is a nice little shield and buckler on the side
1: ecumenism was largely discussed in the past two centuries from a position of Christendom's strength so the situation is just different for us now because of Christendom's or Christianity's relatively much greater weakness. So it was a discussion very often between very strong, very lar- numerically large, well funded groups about how they would or how they should cooperate better. Ecumenism, as let's say, simply the realization for your own part that other people who are not the kind of Christian that you are, are in fact Christians and, they're in fa- and, and therefore would be allies, helpers, supports in various difficulties that you may have, even before we speak about classical ecumenical discussions, such as what kind of order should the churches have? Can we share the Eucharist? Lots of things like that, which are kind of, I think, higher level discussions. But an everyday realization that the people that you work with to end the murder of children or whatever are not in fact the kind of Christian or do not share the the precise confession that you do is in some ways more valuable to us than a lot of the discussions of ecumenism or the ecumenical movement that are premised on high-level professional discussion by theologians from groups that sense their own strength. Because that age... Is almost entirely gone. Yeah. So, in view of that, now that that is, it is not entirely gone, but it is almost entirely gone. And certainly it's almost entirely gone in the West. Relates to something else when you think about unity is that I think a lot of people are thinking about something about which the Bible talks almost not at all. And that is how you have to feel when other people are talking. Because what they're sensing in their own congregations or the congregation they visit that seems unrecognizable to them, even though it's supposed to be the same or something, is a series of particularly emotional impressions. This is bad. This is wrong. This is messed up. And it's not that all those things are – it's not even that your impression is wrong. The question really is what are you going to do about it? Because if your answer is, well, I'm not going to do anything, then – my response to you is, what exactly are you complaining about? And by I'm not going to do anything, what you actually mean is not that you're not going to complain about it on the internet, but that you won't do anything about it. Because otherwise, and that's true for anybody. I mean, there are lots of things everybody's aware of that you're not doing anything about because you have limited energy and time and you have limited authority over you know, the whole world or whatever. But If you're going to be upset about something, then you should do something about it. Let me just give a concrete example so that this desire, this striving for unity, actually becomes a little clearer for people. And the difference here between information and all the other aspects of life, especially life with other people, is really important here. The Apostle Paul is absolutely correct about the doctrine of justification by faith. And with people for with whom he has immediate direct authority, like the congregation at Galatia, or the congregations in Galatia, he is vehement, direct, and clear about how they need to change their thinking on the issue. And then there are practical effects of the fact that their ideas have been totally wrong. You'll also notice that in the book of Acts, this comes up over and over and over again, as do related issues like the necessity of circumcision other parts of the Mosaic law, and eating food. That comes up from the group that Paul, if you read Romans 9 through 11, is most especially emotionally destroyed by when they don't listen to God's proclamation. And that is his own group, his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews. Right? This would be, you know, along the lines of the last episode, This these would be Jews outwardly, right? So no wordplay involved. You'll see that what Paul does is that he will, in Acts 15 and Acts 20 and 21 and 22, he will speak even to recalcitrant non-believers, let alone believing Jews who you'll notice when he visits Jerusalem the second time there. James talks to Paul like Paul's kind of an idiot. Like James is like, let me explain the situation in Jerusalem. Now remember, Paul grew up there. Let me explain the political players here and what they're upset about. Now, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. <laughs> okay. So James is telling Paul a lot of stuff Paul already knows. On an informational level, Paul is the world beater. Okay. He's destroying all the competition on a sheer informational level. Okay. That's part of the particular power of him as an apostle. He has an energy and an information level, seemingly nobody else has. So now he's in Jerusalem, and we thought we solved this after the first meeting where the church in Jerusalem, which, if you'll also notice, never does anything outside of Jerusalem. Unlike Antioch, it didn't send anybody practically anywhere. The church in Jerusalem has to have this big meeting to make sure that the Gentiles are doing things that they have discerned Gentiles ought to do. For the sake of peace, Paul and Barnabas go along with this stuff, even though the church in Jerusalem doesn't give money, time, or people to anything else. So now you got a second meeting. Here's James telling Paul, well, people are getting nervous. People don't like what you're doing, blah, 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 blah. Paul goes along with it. What that practically means is that Paul is not dividing. And I mean in actual practice. The church is not divided by the fact that Paul is being slowed down and talked down to by people who, in the whole scheme of things, are doing very little. Because the momentum in the whole book was supposed to be outward and outward and outward. And Jerusalem likes to suck everybody inward and inward and inward. And in order not to lose all of those people or to create a fissure on his own, Paul goes along with it. You'll notice both in 15 and in the later encounter in the early 20s, which includes Paul's speech, right? That's going to get him ultimately in trouble and it's going to get propel him to Rome eventually. In all of that, Paul talks relatively little. Okay. So he lets other people talk, even though his information level is higher. And he, but he thereby does not splinter the church, which could easily fracture over, in that case, something utterly legitimate, which is the fact that Paul is preaching to the Gentiles that they don't have to ethnically become Jews, because that's what circumcision and Jewish food laws mean functionally. Okay. So the issue here is that. What we are trained to value, both by our intellectual tradition, but also by the internet, is information over and above everything else. What we have been less trained to value, both by our intellectual tradition and definitely by the internet, is what actually is occurring. Because that tells you at least as much as the words do. And this is a test that when we discussed this on the Discord channel, people were somewhat confused by because I think we're just unfamiliar with it. The question, Peter, do you love me, is not an invitation to an intellectual debate. (laughs) It's supposed to challenge you about a certain kind of a life. And Peter exemplifies that. I mean, he defends Paul in Acts 15. But Paul also exemplifies that even where if you're actually following the players, And what information each person has and what's actually going on and who's even doing anything, what right does James have to question Paul? James is doing very little outside of Jerusalem. Paul doesn't point that out. Okay. So I think that the the thing that we're talking about here, if we're talking about reconquest, is actual offensives against the reign of Satan in church and family and state and those don't require the same thing that having just good ideas about how to do that or even more common good diagnostics about what's wrong actual reconquest requires more and especially i think this is particularly pertinent more humility because you have to you have to sometimes sit there in silence while somebody who doesn't really know what he's talking about talks because he's also part of your group. He's also a member of your church or a member of your family or a member of your whatever your state or your your polity is. And for the sake of unity, you are not going to go along with everything he says. Paul doesn't compromise the gospel, but you're going to try to preserve unity over just shutting him down or dropping a bombshell or clapping back or whatever other set of stupid metaphors we have for mic drop moments that we love to engage in because we think that saying your piece is really all there is to life
0: we think we're in a sitcom and if we just do it right everybody (laughs) will cheer and then we'll be famous that's right yeah it's it's subconscious everyone i'm telling you animal they got us trained Solid. Um, pack herd thinking here. You know, the church talks, or the, the Bible talks about it as the body. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. Right. There's a number of directions you could go with that theology. It's it's pretty deep. But just to kind of then shift it into pack herd thinking and the uniqueness of Christianity in stating that the least of these is of the utmost value. Uh, The revolutionary idea of human dignity and worth uh, injected into the world, really, by New Testament Christianity. I think Old Testament Israelitism had it, but, you know, uh, things got interesting by Second Temple time. But Christianity definitely sends this to the nations, and while the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is indeed about salvation by grace through faith unto the life of the world to come, it is also about salt and light in this present age. And a big part of that salt and light was not only he is risen, the king reigns, but then therefore you, whoever you are, human— are worthy in his sight and invited to the final banquet, right? And so dignity of mankind being a, a major result of Western civ and the body politic, you know, the, the big pack we all thought we belonged to, where everybody's now, what is it, Judeo-Christian, I guess they're saying these days. Um, but what we found is that uh, even on the, the local levels now, pack and herd dynamics are almost absent from a lot of places. Etiquette and how you would speak to someone so that you do feel safe in any given area is shifting and drifting away. Uh, class distinctions are becoming bigger and bigger. And for that reason, all the more is it necessary for, for shepherds, for pastors, just to think about how their congregation operates as a herd, as a pack, uh, how the least of these are loved, cared for, Understood, um, and how how those with knowledge, right, uh, seek not to be puffed up, as you said a moment ago, right? Uh, but yeah. seek the uh, the agnu, uh, the the abasement of uh, kind of self aware weakness. Uh, that that okay, so you're smart. You know what that means? It means you're more likely to be despairing in vain. So yeah, get on the ground and <laughs> repent, right? So um, yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of threw a lot there, but but the. Pushing for the spirit of unity, then, in your herd means beginning to to see, if you're a leader in the herd, you got to care for, for the entire herd. Yeah. Um, and then a left-turn-other nugget, though, I, I can't get over it. Now that I've decided that I believe that the only other religion besides Christianity in the world really is Gnosticism— um, this idea that we, we treasure information over all things um, and uh, the worship of that special knowledge. If I just get the right knowledge, then I'm superior to you. Uh, I, I don't think that's accidental at all to the religion of progress. Ooh, see what I did there? Yeah.
1: I think that what you're dealing with in the exaltation of information over everything else is that you create, especially in your authorities, you create a very weak in a, in a practical or let's say, if you want to, because I, th- I think that practical, again, like the concept of order or form is heard by Americans as essentially void of meaning. And that's not what practical means. Practical means that theory is carried into practice. The distinction between theory and practice is just the distinction between thinking about something versus doing something, but in life, they always go together and your practice is based on your theory, and your theory reflects on your practice, and they're inside and out and intertwined with each other. So that when we say practically, what we mean is, let me see what his actual theory is, because I can discern that from his practice. Or let's see in other terms, what his actual doctrine or belief is, because I can discern that from his practice. And that what happens in practice when information is exalted over everything else, And this could be information about lots of things. It doesn't have to be information about doctrinal systems. It could be the exaltation of emotional intelligence. It could be the exaltation of classified status. It could be lots of things. But it has to do with a knowing that no one else actually knows. And it's usually called in our political sphere, the the reign or the tyranny of expertise. (laughs) But it can exist in all kinds of human groups for all kinds of reasons. What happens, though, is that it creates a very weak leader who is very, very brittle. Anytime his expertise or anything that clearly demonstrates he doesn't have comprehensive expertise is said, whereas even the Lord Jesus will say at times, who made me a judge over you, (laughs) right? Like, I I don't do absolutely everything that there is to do. The apostles, there's a real dispute in their congregation between the Greek speakers and the Aramaic speaking widows and the apostles are like, well, let's find some guys to deal with this <laughs> because, because in God's divine order, no authority has to be utterly comprehensive. Jesus Christ is utterly comprehensive. So the state doesn't have to do precisely what the church does. And the church doesn't have to do precisely what the state does. And neither of them is supposed to supplant the family. So what we do when we exalt information is that we, we create people who, are obsessed with how much they know about whatever the privileged form of knowledge is. And that not only creates certain dynamics and how, you know, like, I I think, for instance, the, the way that this manifests among Lutherans is that our laity incessantly underestimate themselves and our clergy incessantly overestimate themselves. Our laity are reluctant to tell other people about Christ or the Bible or what the Bible says about a certain topic because they're worried about getting it wrong. Our clergy go around talking about how they know Greek and Hebrew and I know in practice most of them don't functionally read Greek or Hebrew. They can use it as a reference tool. That's not the same thing as knowing it. So we, we always you always banish honesty when you want to bring in the exaltation of knowledge for its own sake. Dishonesty always enters the equation at that point. Similarly, when someone's claim to fame is that he knows a lot, then he wants to make his life irrelevant. So that's why, again, let's just do inside baseball today. Lutherans will read the requirements for overseers in First Timothy three or Titus one, and they'll read them like almost like jokes. <laughs> and what they really are, are are position descriptions. And they largely don't have to do with what you know. They st- Some of it has to do with what you know, but a lot of it doesn't. Now, this is acknowledged by people even in our own past. Wilhelm Lea, who knew an absolute ton, way more than your average parish pastor, Wilhelm Lea says in his pastoral theology, which I think is the best one that American Lutherans have ever used. We didn't write it, but we've used it, and it's now in English as the pastor. He says that... A, li- a little humility and a sincere confession are of vastly greater value than great learning. Great learning yoked to those things can be incredibly powerful. <laughs> but of the three classic requirements that he has a, a knowledge of doctrine, he has a sincere confession, and he is of a pious disposition or or he has a pious life, the confession and the life are of vastly greater importance. And when that man who knows that he doesn't know a ton but knows enough to teach, right, carries out his ministry faithfully. He is of much greater use, Leia says, than the man who only knows a great deal, who is simply dissatisfied that he's required to do things like sit with somebody when they're dying because that's not his opportunity to tell everyone how much he knows. So what you're dealing with here is that life is... The important thing, the life of your family, the life of your congregation, the life of your church more broadly, right? The life of families in our country more broadly. And that those are the things that we care for. And we, we have to care for them through the actuality of love, not the possibility of more information. My other suspicion is that most of us have plenty of information. We're just not doing a lot with it.
0: <laughs> I, I, yeah, uh, the barrage, right? I think the barrage of it kind of numbs us into stasis, you know, yep. it, it that the joke analogy would be the deer in the headlights, right? But it's, yeah. it's correct. That's what's happening to the brains of most of us by about two in the afternoon, maybe three, because like right. it's just too much coming down the pike and you can't think about it all. So you come, come up with your tools and your tricks to try to deflect and, and whatnot. Um, but it just, it wears you down. Which right. kind of leads to something you you got to earlier ish, and and I think is is connected in here. It definitely is something that you uh, seeded in my thinking a couple of years ago when you were here for our our fall uh, stewardship event, mm-hmm. and and this is the imp- it's not imperative like you you have to set a rule so that you can do this so that it works. It's more like this is an unavoidable reality. And so you better do it on purpose. And that is, <laughs> you know, that is the the fact of imitation in the life of the Christian in the congregation, in the life of the Christian in the home, uh, that you can talk and talk and say and say, and it can all be right and this and that. But at the end of the day, the spirit you're going to pass on is a spirit you're living with right and and your right. if your uh, spirit in the in the congregation as a pastor or as a leader this is very much true for leadership and, and, and you know laity as well um, uh, that uh, when you are seen you will be imitated and so right. if you're going to talk, in front of others, uh, a, a massive dose of recognition that uh, if you talk poorly, others are going to talk poorly too, and that's going to come back and hit you, right? So so you have to pursue this. It, it sounds so simple, not a new command, uh, but honestly walk in the door and try to love everybody before you tell them how they can improve their lives or know Jesus better, right? And golly, I sound like a liberal sometimes, but I think, uh, well, like you said, doctrine and practice are a single coin here.
1: Doctrine and practice are either side of the same coin. And the issue there is that there is such a thing as having one without the other, but there is not such a thing as either being sustainable without the other. And we're not so much interested in, and I'm happy to say it here again, even though we have, we have discussed this on the Discord, is that... Uh, the, The issue here is not so much that we have tons of doctrinal things to spell out that haven't before been spelled out. I do think, for example, we have doctrinal things to spell out in the realm of the relationship between the church and the state, especially in a situation of state tyranny. What to do about that and how to handle it, that would be good. So it's not that there's nothing to work on in a purely doctrinal or in more general terms, a theoretical form, no question. But that the things that generally militate against the church's flourishing, whether broadly or a specific local congregation, have to do with the practical implications of its own doctrine. And if you're going to claim to possess the truth on a doctrinal level, then what you want to do with that truth is use it fruitfully on a practical level. So the example that I gave when we discussed this is one of the easiest to understand and that is the the shock and the shame that people who did not have our very thoroughly worked out doctrinal expression of holy communion and I I would be willing to bet that if you just surveyed folks in the pews in a given local Roman Catholic parish and a given local Lutheran parish on a Sunday, a much higher percentage of the Lutherans would actually believe that Holy Communion is the body and blood of Christ, because we inculcate it pretty well, and it's fairly simple, and we reinforce it by actual practice of things like closed communion, which is a consequence of believing that this is God's body and blood. Roman Catholics have some of those things on the books, but they don't practice them and therefore, people tend to believe less. And they have some of those things on the books, but their instructional system for your average, you know, 12-year-old Roman Catholic is not nearly as thorough as ours is. So that's where we have a doctrinal advantage over, you know, say, your local Roman Catholic parish. But guess what? Guess who stayed open probably as a greater percentage than we did? People have no such sacramental doctrine of Holy Communion. So they don't personally believe at their Baptist church or their non-Nam church, you know, that Jesus Christ is physically coming into the flesh to their congregation today, but they stayed open for other reasons, right? Some of them biblical, some of them due to, you know, their political leanings and all of that, they stayed open. We had collectively and entirely a very clear reason to all of us be open whatever kind of moderate Republicans some of us fancy ourselves to be, or most of us are probably pretty politically conservative, we had a very clear theological reason to be open. Most of us weren't. And all of us were told not to be for a certain period of time. And the reason to look back at stuff like this is not to age in recrimination. The reason is to realize that one of our enormous group failings is that we fail to understand what our own doctrine even means practically and that that's what we're saying so i'm not making a case that only practice matters only love matters i'm saying that these things are proof of others that the practice proves what the actual beliefs are and that if we had the actual beliefs we claim to have our practice would have been on a wide scale a lot different that's the issue right so A liberal might be saying, well, love is all that matters because he doesn't believe in doctrine. I believe so much in doctrine. That's why I believe (laughs) that practice matters as much as it does. And that when the practice is not there, my contention is that the doctrine's not there either. Not really. No. So that's what we're dealing with. And we have plenty of other things to say, especially about our own history that we probably don't have time for this week but that's the nutshell of the thing is that i'm i'm very uninterested in people's information levels when i see that their activity level is also low if their activity level is high then the information then they'll want more information than they do have however much they already have but if their information level is high or low that tells me relatively less than what is practically occurring
0: yeah, if you can hit a three over and over again in your driveway, it doesn't mean much. It doesn't mean much <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah. So the point is not recrimination here. The point is integrity. The point is to be unified as much as possible because the devil, the world, and our flesh desire to tear us to shreds. <laughs> right. You know, we're prowling around like a roaring lion, and and really recruiting us to bite and devour each other over, things that, uh, as you point out, often are more about our personal bouts with spirits of despair and pride than about our belief in the regeneration of water, word, bread, wine, spirit of truth, unity in the body, resurrected now, it began yesterday, let's go, Um, that just, I don't know, it sits behind an amalgamation of, of bureaucratic needs uh, and steps, uh, things we, we tell ourselves we can't quite do without. And, and I get that too, because as you've pointed out before, like you, you don't want to lose your functioning institution if you can help it just, just because all the other ones are falling down doesn't mean you can't put a patch on somewhere. Uh, and yet it is that spirit that has got our laity afraid to talk that, it just has to be something about how we preach. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but it really is. Hey, how, how else? We, we are so smart. We know it so well that only the pastor can say it. And you got to be careful when you say it, because if you say it that way, you know, you might be saying this. And and that spirit is so destructive to the individual conscience, even just wanting to open the Bible and like learn. Uh, it makes you be have to be a master right away. Um, and if I can put it in, you know, some some martial art picture a little bit, you know, if if the black belt, you know, takes the first white belt that walks on and just like, you know, crushes him, you know, show, let me show you, right, that moment, you, well, you're not going to be teaching a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. you know, they're not going to come back. Uh, you know, yeah. And and if you show them kind of, hey, check this out, let me show you this, you know, um, I'm not saying that that's necessarily, you know, pastor at the door, the, the language you want to use, um, but we, we have to somehow combat this spirit which is evident in our ladies' fear. It's evident. Yeah, go.
1: It's our it's our ladies' fear and it's our clergy's fear and it and it's our clergy's despair because they both want more from their people and they and they do not expect more. Hmm. So that that is I think one of the causes of the severe amount of cynicism Often expressed a little more piously as a as a pious despair behind that is a cynicism about God's people, and I think that behind all of that is an incapacity to to that is not necessary, but it's there, an incapacity to move people from I know something to I'm using the something that I know to I know a little more to I'm using the little more that I know that that constant gain in both theory and practice consonant with the theory that should be the way that you learn anything that you learn. So, you know, I'm not just interested if you have an MBA, I'm interested if you can also actually manage a business. I'm not interested if you just know about electrical circuits. I'm interested if I can call you to be my electrician. So anything that a human being knows is going to be integrated with what he does. There are not therefore purely liberal arts or purely theoretical arts that anybody learns in the educational systems that the reformers set up because they say a Christian will put what he learns into the love of God and the love of his neighbor. You can read Melanchthon on that. He's got some educational writings you can can pick up on that topic. So what we're interested in is not just that the person knows what he knows, but that he also can can use it. And as far as the and this will kind of set us up for for next time. As far as that goes, using the models of the the presidio from the Spanish frontier experience, as well as the covenant from the English frontier experience, is that what we're looking for? is a little bit more of that English experience than in the Spanish experience. The the Spaniards, and I'll talk about this more next time, the Spaniards were like the Germans in having a pretty clear desire for centralized authority and authorization to do things and to say things. And sometimes that was crippling, but it, it got things much better organized than the English did. But the advantage of the English is that they allowed people to figure things out on their own and then to put it into practice. So they, for instance, figured out how to handle the problem of keeping families on the frontier that the Spanish never really did, not on a a mass scale, that the English did and therefore kept populations very low relative to English colonies thereby eventually kind of dooming them <laughs> because hundreds of years later, their colony could still be swamped in, say, Texas or or Northern California by an influx of, of Anglo-Americans. So what we're interested in is the capacity to mobilize people for wise action. And that's not going to happen unless we, and I think you're right to identify the problem with preaching, maybe more than anywhere else until we give them the capacity or model for them the capacity or allow them the capacity to figure out how to use these things in their lives. People are already doing that, okay? So the issue isn't, is this going to happen? Will there be a remnant? The answer to that biblically is always, yes, there's going to be a remnant. Of course, there's going to be a remnant. The question is always, do we want to be part of that or not, (laughs) right? You know, yeah, there's going to be a church. Is there going to be a church in Jerusalem or are we just going to inform everyone, you know, how great we are until we don't exist anymore? You know, that's the question. So that that's our interest is in, you know, preservation and extension of what we have. And the way to do that is to have practical integration in our own preaching lives and so forth. That's going to enable everyone around us to do more practical integration. And if I can use this word in the more normal English sense rather than a technical theological sense to inspire people. I don't know that I've ever changed my own life personally in view of someone else's life because he argued me into changing it. Arguments are always part of that, as your thinking or your doctrine is always part of your practice. But changes in practice have usually come from a certain, generally not discussed or explained, just seen inspiration or motivation, if you want to use that word, or push to be different than I am. That's almost never been talked about or taught explicitly so it's fitted into other things that I've thought about or I've talked to other people about or I've been argued into thinking about. That's all part of it. But the actual push or the actual change or the actual motive came from seeing something or someone that was different in his life than I was in mine. And I and I desired the life that he was living rather than the one that I was.
0: Yeah, that reminds me very much of a moment when I was young and I was uh, at dinner at a friend's house in college. And uh, um, I would, I hadn't gone to church for some time Uh, somewhere between 13 and 16, a number of wicked habits, you know, compiled to just make church Mm -hmm. going something I didn't care for. But I, you know, I, Kind of was crawling back from time to time. In any case, you know, I was at their home uh, after Easter service and uh, eating dinner with uh, my friend and then his fiance's family. And uh, one of his uh, his fiance's sisters was engaged, and then the brother was there and all this. Anyway, I just remember looking at the man who was you know twice my age, uh, mm-hmm. younger than my father but not by a lot, um, and just wanting what he had. I just. I was just like, dear Jesus, is this is this even real? You know, it was so different than the the, the maniac uh, high school driven. I don't know if it was testosterone <laughs> so much as yeah, just right, you yeah, know, right. gonna go live a cool life, make some money, man, rock on. Uh, right. Uh, it was so different than that, and it, and it really did inspire me. Um, I and I that's a word that, by the way, I just keep pushing it myself because. Not only do we, as Lutherans, talk about the inspiration and inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures, uh, which means that when you when you read them uh, to yourself or out loud, they are inspiring you. Like, literally, that's what they're yeah. doing. They're, they're bringing right. breath into you that is the Holy Spirit of God. So unless you're just not paying attention, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> you know, it, it should be inspirational. Um, yeah. and, and then to, to believe, that's our dogmatics, people. Come on, we have... The, oh we're just so trapped in our dogmatics the holy spirit is is active in our midst the reason that you had these protestant groups getting together you might it might because they want the nation state of israel to rebuild a temple but but it might also be that they outlasted COVID because they believe that the church is where two or three are gathered in christ's name and the holy spirit does dwell in in their midst in that gathering and make them a temple of god even though they misunderstand how the water and the word have have you know obviously signified this Right. (laughs) right so uh, ah, inspiration is something that I think uh, is very much what we want to be about as a people again and, and that then means for the pastors out there and I, I, I know because I am one of you i was one of you in, in this way that that despair um that that impatience that that's a temptation that's unavoidable like so it's not about how you're bad and other pastors are better than you that's the temptation of the zeitgeist right now pushing down and what it is imperative that you you find is your duty right, uh, is to honestly uh, imagine your way, inspire yourself by means of the text of the Bible, by means of yeah. your relationship to that book as the wizened thing. Have you looked at your, sorry, I'm tangenting now. Have you looked at your your you know um, graduation and call documents recently? Uh, Magistri Definitatis, you're a mage, okay? So so get out there and learn something from that book that inspires you. It's there, it's why you want to stem. You were inspired for some reason. you find that again and yeah. blow blow on that flame, right? Don't let them take away fan into flame from us. We can be <laughs> we can be a yeah. blaze if we want to yeah, be. Oh my be a goodness. Blaze. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So, Any Roman Catholic listeners like, what's that about?
1: Yeah, they don't go <laughs> go look it up. This is the deep lore. Um <laughs> there was a there was a time when I was considering whether I was gonna what I was gonna do with my life. And went to church at my church that didn't have a pastor and we couldn't get a pastor and blah, blah, blah. And I was the church president because nobody else wanted to be and They were all tired and they had to change the constitution to make somebody that was only 21, the church president. It was, I mean, it was great, but it was kind of a mess reflective. Right. And so I go to church and there's a pastor filling in and he's coming from Lancaster to this Philadelphia suburb, Ridley park. And we're in this church that doesn't, Congregation doesn't exist anymore now. And we're thinking we might not exist. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I just want to go to law school or something and make a bunch of money. That's my stupid idea about my life, right? And so I'm sitting there and and Pastor Nickel, whose widow would later be my parishioner in Lancaster County, Pastor Nickel, David Nickel, I'm naming him for the honor that I think he deserves, just preaches a sermon and just asserts, you know, that unbelief is is evidence of foolishness. Now, that's completely scriptural, but I had never heard anybody say that before, not out loud. Unbelief is evidence of foolishness. And uh, Pastor Nickel was pretty old even then. I mean, I bet he was in his 80s. I'd, I'm not sure. He passed away a few years after that. And he had trouble getting up and down the steps there at St. Mark's. Pastor Fisk knows those, those, those steps. Some
0: steps. Those are some steps. Those
1: steps separate the men from the boys. And so um he's up and down the steps and it's a little shaky, but I'm just like, this guy is doing something obviously godly. I want to do that with my life. <laughs> and um, and that was kind of it. You know, that was kind of it. That made the decision for me in a way that was not rational at the time. Like I it wasn't in my thoughts. So, his son is a pastor too. So, if if he's listening or if anybody knows, Pastor Nickel, now active, please you know say thanks to him for his dad, who was just awesome, right? And that didn't Pastor David Nickel did not try to recruit anybody to the ministry that day, but the way that he was and and the clarity that he had did so. So this is where the the life is 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 a proof that the words alone are not, even though the words themselves about about unbelief were in this case very powerful.
0: So let me, um, we're over time, of course, here, uh, but that's okay. Uh, we'll take a moment more, at least. I I really want to talk about systems, but I think we'll have to save that till next time. Yep. But yeah. But I'm that's fine. I'm gonna go ahead and be be vulnerable here for for just a moment. I've had quite a uh, quite a life as a pastor um i have i've been in a lot of places seen a lot of different things and and one of them i'm pretty sure you'll remember this you know i mean i i have i have baptized someone with water from a water bottle in a starbucks um
1: (laughs) right yeah i mean of course i remember that yeah so so,
0: so that's and and you remember uh as we we lived in kind of saw each other regularly Then you know, that individual, um, her trial and struggle and, and coming to that point and all these kinds yeah. of things. But so not to, to, to say none of that, that it doesn't matter, but what I have never had happen as a pastor um, is, is a God honest, like um, conversion through my persistence with an individual uh, over time, um, uh, through prayer. Uh, and I don't, I don't say this because I think that we should all be able to like, well, I'm going to pick this guy and just go. And then therefore, um, but I I do think uh, that we're supposed to kind (laughs) of make that effort a little bit, uh, with, with those who are around us, that is, you know, you know, Jesus, show me the person who I am supposed to convert since I haven't been able to for a while. Right, or, or and some of this is a Lutheran problem because we just don't have the closer the way that you know evangelism explosion does and all this, um, and and maybe that's that's a worthy topic perhaps for us at some time to take up, uh, you know, call to action as Lutheran. Um, but uh, what what I have just begun doing uh, is I kind of already said it a moment ago is offering this prayer with some regularity, like, like Jesus Christ. I would like to be involved in bringing the joy you have shown me to somebody else and uh you know as opposed to like maybe hey i would like more members right i've prayed that a lot right Uh, but but how how do i take this light this this uh this salt and um and and give it to someone because you know in the past it seems like you know at least online apologetics it's all great but like yeah (laughs) it's not feeding souls right now. And so, yeah, um, yeah, I'll give you last word on this one here.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the practice is sitting there in the doctrine and this precise phrase I first heard from a very interesting character named Guido Merkins, interesting in Missouri Senate history, if you want to do inside baseball, uh, that's some inside baseball. So the precise phrase I learned from him, he was saying it in a, late 50s to begin with. But it, it does contain the seed as the church's action in the book of Acts is contained in the ascension of Jesus at the beginning of the book. And the phrase is, Christ is risen, we are going to win. And that is where I, I find it impossible, honestly, to be despairing or impatient. The patience is really, I mean, and all of these things are gifts. I I don't, I don't find any of these things to be like, I woke up one day and figured this out, but the patience I find to be easy when I just recall that I am not in control. I mean, it, it gives you the, the fact that Jesus rose according to scripture means that the whole thing is under the Holy spirit's control. So The idea that I'm impatient is just, is always laughable. It doesn't mean that I'm never impatient. It means that it's always laughable. So, I mean, Paul gets impatient with the girl that's running around, you know, proclaiming that he's a servant of the most high God. He gets greatly annoyed, Luke says, you know, after several days of somebody badgering you from behind everywhere you go, you would be greatly annoyed too. But when I'm impatient in more foolish ways, it's always laughable. But despair would actually be, I mean, it it is Judas-like. Despair is the sin of Judas because you're acting as if nothing is possible anymore. And what Paul means when he says, with God, all things are possible is not that with God, you're going to have a really successful real estate business, <laughs> you know. which is how Christians often use that verse. But what it means is that God will do all things well according to His power and according to our need, as He discerns it, not as we discern it. So I, I don't I don't really understand despair on the level of a professing Christian because he has an everlasting gospel to proclaim. So there's a certain, I mean, you know, we all have our different experiences and psychological makeups and, and spiritual temptations, but the idea of mass collective despair should be and really is unthinkable. If you think about this in a doctrinally logical way, if I may, that Jesus is risen, but but you're despairing or, or Jesus is risen, but you don't really need to tell anybody. But I mean, none of that really makes any sense to me. So what I find is that the practice is is powerful. The witness of the life is always powerful. And the power that is in that, that life is the power that comes from these truths, and especially the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. So then everything else flows from that, and the practice flows from that, and the, the mission and the joy that Luke talks so much about in Acts also flow from that as also and we can talk about this next time the order and aligning ourselves with that order also flows from that fact that that jesus is risen so we are going to win so i mean we don't we don't have anything we necessarily need to fear we have things we have to think about but but nothing that we need to to fear
0: who's gonna stop the king you're listening to a brief history of power you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com
1: What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this, Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.